I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, it is a little bizarre that in the Debunking Economics podcast, we haven't devoted an episode to debunking some of the common myths about economics. Yeah, we've taken a number of them one by one over the years. But this week, let's look at five of the big hitters, ideas that can clearly be shown to be wrong and yet are adopted as sacred and without question by neoclassical economists. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Okay, well, Steve, the first one, this is really the uh, the first page of the economics textbook, isn't it? We're looking at the demand curve. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the idea is as price goes up, demand falls, and that's sort of... If I was running a business and I was selling widgets, that would that would normally make sense, wouldn't it? That's sort of a, at a microeconomic level or on, on a business level. Yeah, I mean, this is this is um, sort of the foundation of economics. They actually call it the law of demand. Okay, yeah. law, L A W law. Quote our old mate. So it Paul. can't be questioned. Can't be questioned. Uh, but in fact, in back in the, 1953, the year of my birth, uh, one leading neoclassical economist called William Gorman decided to question it. Not because he wanted to question it, because he could see all the tension central logical flaw in the argument, and that was that all the stuff they do to derive, uh, and they, I can't help but speak about neoclassical economists in the third person, because right. they're not me. But they, okay. They, okay. Will, they will henceforth be Hence, referred to as they. They are always right. they. Yeah. Okay. They they teach students a little thing about what they call indifference curves to derive the, 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 what they call the law of demand. These days, they whack that thing at the back of the textbooks. If you actually get a copy of Man-Q, and all students now grab a copy of Man-Q, you'll find that advanced topics include the indifference curve. They start assuming a demand curve in the front of the book and then bang at the very end of it. Now well, they. Yeah. Well, I remember because page two was, you know, all those exemptions, wasn't it, really? So the page one was this is how the demand curve works. And then page two is, oh, but then we get inferior goods. Well, the, yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then things can actually work the other way, right? Yeah, that's why they call it Giffen good. Mm. As, as is usual from neoclassical economics, named after somebody who wasn't there when the historical event they refer to occurred, which was the potato famine. Mm. So one of the things that they'll say is, well, there is an exception, and that's when the price of what you're buying is so expensive that uh, you spend – if the price rises, you've got to abandon other stuff and buy more of the stuff you don't want to buy. So the, the neoclassical explanation for the, um, for the potato famine – should we go into the potato famine itself? The history? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Potato famine occurred because it was actually, I think, a French, either a French noble or an English noble with exposure to France realised that in France they have what they call the pomme de terre, the apple of the earth. Yeah. And, uh, and he thought this would be a great product to introduce into Ireland because the Irish, after being you know, a, a tiny little event called the invasion of Ireland by the by the uh, William of Orange, mm. the third successor of the guy who threw the Spanish out of um, out of Netherlands, uh, he's, he's invited in to become the English king. Then there was this totally brutal invasion. Cromwell did them over as well. So this is this is the historical background of why the Irish aren't particularly fond of the English. 
uh, over time. Well, I think most of them have got over it now, haven't they've they? They've got over they've, it now to some extent, yeah. but they're back to the potato famine. So this, when when the English were the landlords of Eng- of of, uh, of Ireland, and you had the the peasants working the land, uh, this guy realised, well, we can bring in the pomme de terre. The potato, mm. and and that will give an easy crop, easy to grow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and so the whole of our the Irish population did adopt the potato. Of course, you know fish and chips. That's the ultimate English cuisine. You know, so the potato became the common food. But of course, he brought it from one farm. Mm. And what it meant was he brought one variety of potato, one genetic variety. And of course, potatoes are root crops, so you don't actually see what's going on until you dig them up. If it was a branch crop and this had happened, it would have been obvious right from when the, the first growth began. So the Irish, regular pastime of, you know, grow the potato, eat the potato, et cetera, et cetera. I've forgotten the actually the potato famine occurred. It's sometime in the 18, 1830s, I think. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. This is this is one big tangent you're taking us off on here. Yeah, but it's an it? important tangent. Okay. Uh, but, but when when the Irish went to dig up with the potatoes, there's what's called the potato blight. Mm. Now, in France, because there were dozens of varieties of, of potatoes, and one thing you've got to say for the French, they enjoy their varieties of of it, 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 not just potatoes, but there's different types of potatoes, different types of everything in France. Mm. In Ireland, there was only this one one genetic element, and that was the one the potato blight wiped out. Right. So in France, the the fall in food in in, in sort of potato production, courtesy of potato blight, the year was maybe say ten percent of the crop. In Ireland, it was almost ninety percent. So what then happened? The, the 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 that meant massive starvation, the Irish exodus, all the stuff that led to the Irish spreading out. Uh, you know, throughout throughout the rest of the world, really happened with the potato uh, blight. Um, but the economic interpretation of this was simply that, well, as the price of potatoes rose because there were less of potatoes, so you know, supply. Mm. Okay, uh, the Irish bought more potatoes because they couldn't afford to buy other things such as pork. Okay, so they had an upward sloping demand curve, and that was supposed to be the exception. That's what students get taught at the front of the book. Back to the back of the book these days. That was actually the back of the book. Now was the front of the book when I did my economics. So we started with indifference curves, right. and what they have this this model. They show that you have an individual with a budget constraint, and the budget constraint is basically their income. You know the d- dollars you earn. You've got the budget constraint and relative prices, and that will give you a line you can draw and say, okay, you can you can afford to spend all your budget on either potatoes or or pork. And there's a straight line linking the true where you're spending 100% of your budget, and that's that's your budget line. Then you have what they call indifference curves, and what they show is a bit like a weather map. You show a, a, a map of the of the climate. If you look on if you look on the on the TV and you see a weather map these days, we see all these contours mm. joining points of equal pressure. Yeah. Okay. Your hectopascals. Okay, hectopascals. Okay. Well, what we have is hector utilities <laughs> in in their classical theory. So they join all these points together where the combination of potatoes. Lots of potatoes and very little pork at one extreme to lots of pork and very little potato at the other extreme. Shown a menu between those various combinations, you couldn't decide which one you prefer. So they call it an indifference curve. You're indifferent between whether they're getting lots of potatoes and a bit of pork or lots of pork and a bit of potatoes and everything in between. And then the budget line, where, where that hits is a tangent and, and touches, just touches the highest of the indifference curves you can reach, that's the combination you buy. Then what they say is, well, now we say, let's we imagine we halve the price of, or let's say double the price of potatoes, okay? Yeah. Uh, then that's going to reduce what you can skim of both. 
Okay, so there's what they call an income effect and a substitution effect. Um, with with the increase in the price of, of potatoes, you can buy less potatoes and less pork because I've spent more on the potatoes. You yeah. spend more on the potatoes, so you mm. end up as the price rose, you spent more on potatoes, and that's supposed to be the exception to the law of demand. Mm. So that's what students learn, and they think, oh, that's you know sophisticated and bullshit. Well, I mean, wouldn't I actually just say potatoes are too expensive now? I'm not going to buy any potatoes, and I'll just eat pork. Well, the thing is, you can't or, afford or, to buy enough. You, or you, something else. You need or you, 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 the idea is you, this, the, this mm. level of the so-called Giffen good. You simply can't afford to buy anything else. Right. Okay, if you don't buy the potatoes, you starve. So no. therefore, you buy more potatoes. That's supposed to be the sophisticated example of an exception. So why and is it bullshit? It's bullshit because if you go back and, and look at the what they're what they're explaining and all that analysis is the demand of one person. Okay, yeah. the indifference curve is the the tastes of a single individual. And of course, we're all supposed. To, we're all supposed. To, we are all individuals. To quote mm. Monty Python, we are mm. all individuals. You know, well, I'm not. Oh yeah, you are. So this is where we get into so to Samuelson in the in the yeah. in the fifties talking about America as one yeah, big yeah. happy family. That's right. Because what Gorman first realised, and Samuelson realised slightly afterwards, uh, fifty three for Gorman, fifty six for Samuelson, is that this is an explanation for the demand curve of a single individual. Mm. Now, how do you get the demand curve for a whole market? Well, you just assume that everyone behaves the same as an individual. I mean, that's what economists do. That's generally. what they do. But the thing mm. is, Gorman and society realised there was a logical flaw going on here because the way they derive this idea of an individual demand curve is they say, let's imagine you've got a, a fixed uh, income, no change in your income, yeah. a fixed price for one of the two goods. So let's put pork on the vertical axis and, and potatoes on the horizontal to work out this indifference curve. And then you rotate the, the curve, the, the fixed point remains your income is constant, the price of pork is constant, you're varying the price of potatoes, and then you work out, okay, given this particular price, how many potatoes will you buy? Then make them cheaper, how many will you buy, et cetera, et cetera. For most goods, when they do that, the, what they call the, the 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 substitution effect because pork is cheap because potatoes are cheaper you're going to buy more potatoes uh, that's a positive relationship between a fall in the price and an in, increase in the demand the income effect of course because because potatoes are getting cheaper you could afford to buy more pork and more potatoes mm. okay so that's income effect um, boosts both those elements. So at the, the micro level, they go through all the stuff, income effects and substitution effects, and they work out, you know, that for, for most commodities, they show that normally you expect price to fall. If price falls, demand will rise. Uh, they then also say that um, the substitution effect complicates things. So if we want to see the, the pure law of demand, what we, is, we do, and this is a guy called John Hicks who turns up all the way through economic theory stuffing stuff up, um, John Hicks said, well, we can get rid of the income effect by – when we drop the price, first of all, you get a new point of tangency to a higher indifference curve, okay? That's so if you if you have imagine this idea of a line going out, you've got a set of contours, and as you make one thing cheaper, the line gets flatter, and therefore the line goes to higher and higher um, indifference curves, a bit like a higher and higher pressure levels in a set of isoquants of for isobars for, for the uh, weather, weather map. Um, he said, well, that's getting to higher indifference curves. Now, if we want to see the pure law of demand, what we have to do is get rid of the income effect. And he said, the way you can do that, you, you, you start with a particular um, budget line and set relative prices. There's a particular indifference curve you're on. Uh, you then move the 
demand, they move the budget line out by dropping the price. That means you reach higher and higher indifference curves. What Hicks says, well, let's just imagine that we could take away the income effect of that lower price by what we do is we simply take the new uh Line of, line of tangency to a higher indifference curve and bring that curve back so it just touches the previous indifference curve, the original one, at a different point. And that necessarily will mean you will have a higher demand for a lower price. That's getting rid of the income effect. I've lost you, haven't I? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I, do, do you know, my, my takeout from all of this was what, what seems like a very simple principle has, has, has been shown that it's too complicated to be simplified. Yeah, and this is and this is what, what this is only stage one. Mm. So most economists are aware of this now. What Gorman did is say, well, when you're working with more than one individual, you have more than one budget constraint. You know, your budget will be different to my budget. Yeah. Okay. Uh, your tastes will be different to my tastes. Yeah, and okay. they're going to be more than two choosing between but two. Who's all you need? Right. Who's all you need to prove it wrong? Because. What you do is, if you, when, you, when, when you see how a textbook does this, and Man-Q is a classic example of this, he simply says, well, we've derived a demand curve for a single individual, and here's another individual. Let's just add them up horizontally. Now, what Gorman's deeper logic was to say, well, you can't do that because when you change relative prices, you also change incomes. You may well be a potato farmer. Yeah. I'm a pork farmer. Yeah. Okay. When you change the relative price, your income changes as well. So the point of tangency moves up and down the vertical axis. And now what you're trying to do is add people horizontally when the point of tangency is no longer fixed. Mm. And you've got multiple points of tangency as well. So there's no feedback, in other words. It's sort of it's assuming you are transplanted from another economy. You're making money elsewhere coming into this economy and spending it, and your, your income isn't, behaved, isn't changing the, the, the economy that you're living with. That's right, but it's wrong yeah. because you're actually in, an, we're in the same country, yeah. both in the UK doing this, so you cannot do that. Yeah. So when you do the pure mathematics properly, what Gorman finally concluded was that the, the demand curve, uh, which, which slopes downwards for the individual, and they do what they call Hicksian compensation because of Hicks's little trick about income and substitution effects, when you do it at the aggregate level, and you therefore say you're looking with multiple commodities and multiple consumers, but two is enough. Two consumers, two goods is enough to show the fallacy. Um, the, the point of tangency is changing from each of the lines. It may be that by making potatoes cheaper, I reduce the demand for potatoes because the person whose income rises doesn't like potatoes. Mm. Okay? So the ultimate solution that Gorman found he had to do was the only way to guarantee that a market demand curve produced by adding up the demands for two or more individuals, for two or more commodities and choosing one of those commodities, the only way to guarantee that that curve actually sloped downwards was to assume that consumers have not identical tastes but parallel tastes, mm. okay? And secondly, those tastes don't change with income. So if you happen to like one potato for every uh, one, uh, 100 grams of pork, if your income increases by a factor of 10, yeah. you'll buy 10 potatoes. And I become a multimillionaire. Pork. I'm still on my potatoes and pork. Uh, and, 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 and on it goes. So, yeah. And he literally, I mean, this, I didn't actually give you this quote because I thought Samuelson's is better. Gorman finally says, because, he, because he, he's a pure mathematician, work, you know, a good mathematician working as an economist, he's brainwashed by thinking like an economist. And this is what happened. This is what pisses me off about them. 
he finally said, uh, he realised that the conditions were that tastes had to be, had what are called Engels curves, had to be parallel for all, not just for individual, they had to be straight lines, parallel for everybody. So you might like more, it, 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 I won't go into that particular complication, but uh, it means our tastes are the same. Mm. Okay. But it also means the commodities are the same. So if you have a one for 10 ratio between potatoes and pork, when you're earning $100, 100 pounds a month, you will have a one for 10 ratio when you're earning a million. So this is the problem generally for economics, isn't it? Not just on the, not just on the demand curve, mm. but I mean, just generally this idea that we let's, let's take the behavior of one and just and extrapolate. Mu- and extrapolate from and it. And that's what that's, they've done. So yeah. he, he actually said quite, I can virtually quote this by heart because when I first was, you, you've got to be just, you've got to be joking. So the necessary and sufficient conditions above seem intuitively reasonable. They say, in effect, that an extra dollar of purchasing power will be spent the same way no matter to whom it is given. Mm. That's not intuitively reasonable. It's no, fucking it's crazy. garbage. It is garbage. I and mean, look, anyone who's uh, be, been involved in marketing knows it's garbage because you spend a, an inordinate amount of time and effort trying, trying, to, to, segment, trying to segment the market exactly. because you know everybody's got different behavior. Let's look at another graph then uh, to do with investors. So you've got the, the capital market line. This, yeah, this is yeah. the trade-off, isn't it, between the, the risk and return shares, on investments, yeah. trying to get what, what is going to be the, 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 the premium. Mm. So this is all really to do with the risk factor. So looking at the standard deviation. Yep. For a particular asset. Yep. And say, okay, if we move along that curve within that standard deviation, we're going to reach an optimum point where we're going to be able to maximize our return. Given the risk we're, risk we're willing to absorb. Yeah. 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 But even first and foremost, if it's if it's a risk, it's unknown, isn't it? So, so isn't this isn't this actually trying to negate the idea of risk? Well, so, uncertainty let's have goes, a, a definitive model that's going to tell you what level of risk you can take. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's still a risk. It's, it, what 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 you've got is uncertainty. Risk being used as a proxy for uncertainty, mm. and that's bad enough. Okay, that's 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 outrageous. But that's what they do, and this is why Ole Peter's work right now on ergodicity economics is so important because it you know drives a Mack truck through that particular assumption. But the one for for Sharp is he did a similar thing. We've talked about for the, the the demand curve for a single individual in a market, and and was approaching the same sort of contradiction because what he had was I'm going to assume that an individual can borrow as much as they like at a risk-free rate, uh, and then has a, a a portfolio of shares expectations that individual has about shares. We have an expected return on the horizontal axis and a, a standard deviation for that expected return on the vertical, and you make up this cloud. Okay, and that cloud is that individual's guesses of what IBM is going to give as a return over time and the volatility of that return, what Tesla's going to give, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. He realized he had a theory for a single individual, but not a theory for everybody. So he said, I'm going to assume that everybody has the same expectations about the returns of shares and their volatility. We all agree on the expected return and the volatility for every share in the market. Now, so what, what are, that means is your NAB podcast doesn't exist, yeah, because everybody has exactly the same expectations. No, that's right, and so there's no absolutely no point in me there every day saying this is the way the markets are going to behave because no, it's already, already predetermined. Everybody already expects it, right? But it, but it, they don't, and so is it. I mean, I mean, it, doesn't that just mean that this this idea is debunked itself by the by yeah, the and existence Sharp, of the market. Sharp himself actually said that in a later paper. He wrote the paper in 1964, I think, the Capital Arc Market Line, and said, needless to say, the sense that we all agree is an extreme assumption. However, 
It's the only way to get the result we believe in the first place. Fundamentally, that's what he said. Mm. Uh, so that we might as well use this assumption. And at a later point, in about four years later, he wrote a paper saying, if we don't have the same expectations, and then quote unquote from this paper, the theory is in a shambles. There's no market line. The whole thing collapses. Right. It's not linear, it's linear mm. in some places, nonlinear in others. Uh, the whole theory goes out the window. So this assumption is false. Well, who's using it? How is it used well, today? Well, it's, it's, it's the foundation of financial management because mm. people go through university courses and learn this garbage. Uh, and then they what they get taught is the only thing that people can differ on is their risk profile. So the only question you have to ask people is how much risk are you willing to take on? And then we'll work out a portfolio for you based on that uh, risk combination. Mm. That's the only way you can differ. Now, this is why when the financial crisis hit, they didn't have a damn clue that it was coming because the theory wasn't only that people have the same expectations. It also had to be that their expectations were correct. And this was stated by in a paper by Fama and French, I think that was in 2004, where they empirically examined the capital asset market line theory over time and found it completely fails completely and abjectly fails and should not be used. So Fama and French, and Fama played the major role in promoting this stuff back in the 50s, that's how he made his career, uh, comes out and says you shouldn't use the theory. It's empirically false. So when your um, advisor says, okay, do you want low risk, medium risk or high risk? That makes no difference. They, 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 they are simply channeling a theory which is false. Right. And, that's, and then they're getting put into the stuff and saying this is going to work out nicely for you in the future. No, it won't because the foundation of the theory is completely wrong. But if I take the low risk, they are they are going to put it into bonds. close to that into bonds. Yeah, yeah bonds. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but but it but it, it's the foundation of finance theory is rotten. Yeah, and, uh, and the government reason- bonds in particular. Yeah, government yeah, bonds in particular. It, yeah. All right. Number three. Mm-hmm. Climate change. Your favorite one. Mm, yeah. um, this idea. And I, I guess I mean. I mean Economists are playing a lot in this space, aren't they now? Because and they, it's almost like they're operating like let's do a cost benefit analysis on. That's on exactly all of this. what they're doing. And so, so we, and the danger of that, of course, is that they say, well, okay, once we put figures in it, we may discover that it's actually really not worth doing anything at all because it's going to cost too much. The 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 societal cost of trying to save the future is going to be so large. We just uh, it's not, the cost benefit analysis is showing. It's not worth us doing anything. Yep, and, that's and pretty much a dinosaur calculation, which is what they've done. Right. They basically said, and like Nordhaus's, if people look at Nordhaus's um, Nobel Prize speech, which they can find online, yeah. and the PDF of it, he has a chart showing that if you attempt to reduce climate change to the level of damage expected, the, the 1.5 degree target that Extinction Rebellion has set, um, that is going to cost about $50 billion and, and, and the benefit will be about $3 billion. So we lose $47 billion, roughly, um, in you know, current dollars to try to save the climate in the future, so it's not worth doing it. And the best situation is in, in, the, in his Nobel Prize speech was to let temperature rise by four degrees, mm. which, which will only cause $16 billion worth of damages and cost us about $3 billion to fix Well, there we are. From an economic point of view, that's fine. Human loss of life, obviously, or the, the extinction. Human extinction, extinction, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a minor cost, really, because, you know. <laughs> so long as the economy is fine. The economy is going to be fine. But that is the problem, isn't it? Because you, if you, the moment you start looking at it on a cost-benefit basis, then the charges that you incur now might be horrendous. But the fact that they are horrendous really says... That's because something is happening here. It's a, which, it's which a, big, it's a big deal. So yeah. like, I haven't published this one yet, but I'm going through Nordhaus's so-called enumeration method that he tried to work out the damages from climate change. And even the graph he drew 
shows his bias in the first place because his graph for the, the cost of climate change just goes exponential. If you try to get to 100% mitigation, which in other words mean temperature remains at pre-industrial levels, then before you get there, he's got infinite cost. No. That's in his mind. Well, that might be because it's unachievable. Um, well, it's... It, it's not necessarily infinite. It would be a finite cost. Yeah, okay? but it would be enormous but finite. Enormous but finite. Yeah. But when he draws the, the, the benefits of it, which, was, which is the, what are the negatives from climate change, he draws a wavy line, which is pretty much a, st- a straight line just with little, little wiggles on it. And at 0% abatement, it's got a finite cost. And in this first paper, he estimated that finite cost of a three-degree increase in temperature as one quarter of 1% of GDP. Mm. One quarter of one percent. That's oh right. That's the, That's not the cost of stopping that happening. That's, that's the, what the, would happen the, if we do nothing. Right. Okay. One quarter of one percent. And you then see the said, impact on the economy. Impact on the global economy, uh, and not not in terms of discounted from the future. That's the difference. GDP in twenty fifty, which is what he's working with his first paper. GDP in twenty fifty would be one quarter of one percent lower than it would be in the total absence of climate change. So it's really sort of comparable with, uh, you know, what some people would say is going to be the impact of Brexit or the No, you know, uh, Brexit's US- huge by comparison to that. crazy. This is rounding error. Yeah. One quarter of 1% is the state level at which they revise annual GDP. So how does he win a Nobel Prize? That's the uh, Because economists are reading his garbage. Right. And economists so, live in garbage and they can't tell garbage so from garbage. So how should we be if if – the idea of a cost-benefit analysis is, I mean, is it the wrong approach or is it the right approach? It's just having the wrong numbers. It's the wrong approach, period. Right. Um, there's no way that you can consider an existential threat with cost-benefit. Just to give you an idea of why, imagine that Winston Churchill, rather than saying, we shall fight them on the beaches. Yeah, let's do it. We shall we do sh- a cost-benefit analysis <laughs> and, and cost- decide whether we will fight them on the beaches. And the cost-benefit it. analysis would have said, yeah. not worth it. Yeah. Uh, the cost of the Germans taking over the economy is maybe one quarter of 1%. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the level of spending but, but in the 1940... Might actually have come out as a benefit to do nothing at all. We might have I'm sorry, where did they come from? Rise, 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 rise of British manufacturing. We could be so much better off, couldn't Let's we? Let's look how industrialised we'd be. <laughs> a few less of us, a few who people got, didn't need climate change to get hot. Uh, but literally, that's that was the sort of... You do not use cost-benefit for an existential threat. Right. Number four... Diminishing marginal productivity. So this sort of makes sense, doesn't it? If, I, if I'm a farmer and I'm using my most arable land to grow mm. crops, mm. Uh, I'm going to come to a point, obviously, where demand is so high. I've used all those fields. I've got to use the less arable fields, but still the same number of workers. So I'm going to get a, a diminishing return based on that increased demand. That makes sense, doesn't it? Now, mate, I'm almost about to give you a Nobel Prize. And a genuine one, because what you've actually stated there is Ricardo's theory of diminishing returns, which is valid. Yeah. Okay. Because what Ricardo said- I don't get it when he goes to the next stage, which is to say, well, actually, you're going to get to a point where your your output actually decreases as you- Well, no, Ricardo's idea made sense in Ricardo's intellectual framework, and that was that you start farming on the best possible land. Yeah. uh, And then as, as, as the need for more output forces you to produce on less arable land, you get a lower output. Yeah. And that was his theory of rent. So he said- Rent is actually the differential between the, the the worst land being used and the best land being used so that the yield is the same for the farmer and the landlord gets the rent difference. That's his theory of rent. So that's actually diminishing productivity because you're using less productive land. And that's a valid concept. What the neoclassicals did was solid diminishing. That's, that's, that's a cool idea. Uh, let's assume that uh, it applies to uh, – 
production where there's no change in the quality of inputs. So you have uniform quality labor and uniform quality capital, and mm. we want to get the same result as Ricardo. Yeah. So how do we so do... So to use your technical jargon, that is bullshit, isn't it? It's bullshit, yeah. yeah. What they did was they assumed that... You, your, your example of a field is perfectly accurate, mm. okay? That's, that's the way it should be used. So I'm going to use another example and say you've got perfectly uniform land quality and you're putting fertilizer on that land, okay? It's the f- fertilizer you're adding. And there's some ideal amount of fertilizer per hectare that you should do. Let's say it's let's just say it's a kilo per square meter. Yeah. Okay. That's the that's the perfect amount of fertilizer to place. And you've got a, a, a square kilometer, a, a thousand a thousand meters. Okay? Yeah. Okay. So then there's the ideal ratio is one one kilo per meter square meter. You've only got one kilo of fertilizer. What do you do according to neoclassical theory? You spread the one kilo over the whole thousand square right, meters. Rather than just taking the one square meter. And putting it properly there. A mm. sensible farmer just puts the fertilizer on where the- Where it's going to work. Where yeah. it's going to work. Yeah. Now, their theory assumes you spread over the whole damn lot. Mm. In, in terms of a factory, what it assumes is you've got a factory with 10 production lines. Uh, you've only got enough workers to properly staff one of the production lines. You spread those workers over the whole 10 lines. Right. With all the costs of uh, running all of those production yeah. lines, even though- so, yeah. so Sraffa made this point, Piero Sraffa back in the 1920s, one of the greatest economists massively neglected. Uh, he said, well, that's just nonsense. A, a proper industrialist would use capital and labor in the ideal ratio and leave the capital idle until demand rose sufficiently that it was worth the while to use more capital and labor in their perfect ratio. And only once you got to the full capacity of the factory would you start to have problems? And at that stage, you should have built a new factory for investment reasons. Mm. So what you'll get is a constant return. You will not get diminishing return. That was his logical argument back in 1926. And a, right. Okay. Unless you're using a resource, which is finite. Unless you've... You well, they, no, there's no such thing as finite resources. They're scarce resources, <laughs> but they're not finite. Now, go back right. to the previous fucking... Assignment. Pardon me. Can you cut that word out, please? I should No, use. no, no. It's, a, it's, it's in there. No, this there is... You in, yeah. There you go. It's, it's, it's too close to Christmas. I'm not editing this at not all. For not kids. for kids. Not for yeah. kids. Okay. Um, so then the, the, when, when a group called the Oxford Research Group of economists back in... Did you see that chart a couple of days ago showing that every prime minister for the last... 50 years or 60 years, 70 years, has come from Oxford, mm. with the exception of those who didn't go to university at all, which included Winston Churchill. Um, everybody else is Oxford. Yeah. Anyway, so what the Oxford... half of them went to Eden, didn't they, as well? As well. Yeah. So the Oxford Study Group was <clears throat> formed by a bunch of economists to go and try to have an interface with business people and you know, bring a theory and practice together. And they had this first meeting, and the businessmen were just shaking their heads and scratching and saying, what are you talking about? You know, we don't... That's not how we produce in a factory. That's not what we do. So they decided to go and do some research and see how many firms had diminishing marginal productivity, which in the textbooks is shown as rising marginal cost. And rising marginal cost is what gives you the upward sloping supply curve. They found 95% of the firms said, no, we have constant or falling marginal cost. Mm. The reason being, if you start off with a factory, we're only using one line if you've got 10 and you've got all the various air conditioning units and heating, blah, blah, blah. As you expand, you get, you've designed the factory to work best as maximum capacity. So as you start getting closer to maximum capacity, your cost per unit are falling. And at the same time, you have huge fixed costs to build the factory in the first place. Necessarily, fixed costs per unit fall as you produce more units. Yeah. So you have diminishing costs from the fixed cost and you have constant or falling costs from the variable costs. You do not get 
diminishing marginal productivity. You don't get a rising so supply how, curve. So how do um, conventional economists argue then the, the difference between this diminishing marginal productivity and economies of scale? They're at odds Economies with of scale, they put in another bracket. So they say, look, they, they, they talk about- Up long- to a point, yeah. It's yeah. economies of scale up to the point where you start to get- Diminishing marginal. Well, I mean, even with long-term stuff, they'll draw curves with falling and then rising long-term average cost curves. Students will go through doing this exercise of the two. Even they don't work out intellectually properly. Um, so they, they they want to talk about economies of scale that occur within a firm but not between firms. It's a complicated mess. We might leave that one for another podcast. <laughs> all right. Uh, but, but out of all of this, so, yeah. I mean, we, we, we've debunked five. Four. Four. One more to go. One more to go. Yes, sorry, the, f- the final one. Yeah, the biggest is, one. W- which, which relates to all of these, though, doesn't it? Is it is when your assumption, when your conclusions depend upon your assumption, and you're, if your assumption's wrong, your conclusions are wrong, yeah. that's not a simplifying assumption. Right. It's a fantasy. So that is number five. That, that we, is the that key that one. It, what, economists what, are simplifying assumptions. That's the they issue. They call them simplifying assumptions. They're, in fact, assumptions on which the conclusions depend. Yeah. Now, a, a simplifying assumption. Garbage is, in, garbage out. Well, yeah, but it's like a simplifying assumption is to assume, for example, that there's no topography between London and, and, and Farnham for the train. Mm. So you show a train map with no question about the topography. If you included the topography on the map, it'd be harder to read, but it would still work. Mm. Okay. That is a simplifying assumption. It wouldn't be far wrong. It is pretty flat between London and It is pretty flat. Yeah. yeah but like, for example, the, the tube map. The, the, mm. the, the, and I see a whole lot of LSE economists making this claim all the time. Uh, our assumptions are like the tube map. The tube map uh, distorts the distances between stations, but you can still use the map to, to navigate, mm. which is true. Now, if you put the distance, accurate distance, you, the map would be less useful, but you could still use the map to navigate. Well, you know, and it does distort behaviour. I mean, I've seen studies showing that, in fact, people uh, walk, get the tube, even though the walking distance is, is shorter because the, uh, because the tube map makes it look further. Yeah, that so, can happen. But so, so yeah, so yeah. it does distort behavior because it's Slightly, inaccurate. But it, yeah, but it, but it's it's an inaccuracy we can live with. It, mm. if you're modifying it to make the map accurate, that would just make the map harder to read. Yeah, but it would still correctly tell you how yeah, to get around London. Anyway. So it, that is a simplifying assumption. These are fantasies. Mm. These are fantasies which are they're false. The theory is wrong, and Sharp admitted they said the theory is in a shambles. So they use. Uh, what what uh, a brilliant uh, philosopher of science, Mus- Alan Musgrave, called domain assumptions as simplifying assumptions. And domain assumptions say, if this assumption applies, then your theory works. No. If the assumption doesn't apply, your theory doesn't apply either. <coughs> so it's like saying, okay, well, we've got a theory here which uh, we'd like to implement, but the problem is there's one or two inconvenient things here that stop it working. So let's just tell ourselves that they don't exist, even yeah. though they're, they're part of the real Get world. Get them rid of them. So, uh, like the, my favourite was that in the financial crisis, because one of their assumptions is rational behaviour. Mm. And I've got a little, this is where my favourite cameo comes in this. I gave a seminar, I, I, I spoke at the Western Economic Association conference when they held it in Brisbane once, you know, and a whole bunch of American neoclassicals came out for the conference, you know, a bit of a holiday in, in Australia as well. And I went to one seminar and there's this young, obviously totally off with the fairies, addicted to neoclassical thought, very voluble, bubbly, young PhD, maybe maybe 28, 30. And I thought if he comes, he's explaining his model and he's having a great time explaining it. And I thought if he comes to my seminar, there's going to be real fun, which he did. And he sat in the front row. And I could just, as I was explaining my Minsky theory, my model of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, he was getting more and more agitated. And I was watching him. And I thought, He's going to say something soon. And he finally blurted out, but, but, and literally, this is how he said it, but, but, you're assuming everybody's an idiot. And I said, 
well, did you see the financial crisis coming? And he said, no. And I said, well, on that basis, on your own assumption, you're an idiot. Why shouldn't I imagine the world consists of people like you? <laughs> I was actually, I, I, I realised how rude I was being and I actually mm. held back from saying say, Do you have trouble making friends, Steve? I have, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's one of my, one of my problems. <laughs> Maybe we can work on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but anyway, he followed me out of the room afterwards mm. and he finally says to me, from the, but, but we, we have to make some simplifying assumptions. I just said over the back of my shoulder, I, there was no point talking to him face to face. I said, mate, you've got to learn the difference between a simplifying assumption and a fantasy. So, I mean, they're part and parcel of the same thing, though, aren't they? Simplifying assumptions and models which oversimplify things. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, this all of this obviously leads towards your work, which is to say, well, actually, the whole thing is far more complicated than that. We can't, we, we've got to include uh, the real world in, in mm, all of this. Mm. We, we can't make these assumptions well, you, and, you, these, and these models don't work. But, well, you've got, to, you've got to work in the opposite direction. They, they, mm. they, if they, they try to build macro from micro. The first one we went through with Gorman and Samuelson shows you can't do that. You, you cannot derive even a market demand curve from mm. microeconomics. The second one shows that the supply curve is, is wrong at the very micro level. That's not how individual firms behave anyway. Um, the stuff over climate change, you cannot assume that the GDP temperature differences that apply on the planet today can predict the impact of increasing temperature by 10 degrees, which is what they do. You've seen my fight with Toll on that front. Um, and the, the, the stock market thing, Literally, when Farmer wrote back saying, not only do we, is, was Sharp's assumption that we don't disagree, that we all agree on the prospects, this is the right assumption. Mm. That is what's going to happen. So are there any laws? I mean, you know, in other brands of, mm. of real science, yeah. uh, we can say, well, you know, we're pretty certain on gravity. You know, we've been observing yep. that until we see something rising yeah. uh, without explanation. We know gravity works. Yeah. Is there any law like that that we can apply in, in economics? Or does economics have no law? In mainstream economics, none. I, you know, that's actually a very interesting question. I'm, I'm struggling to think of anything that is called a law mm. that actually applies in reality in economics, like the law of one price, for example, that's yeah. violated across the planet. Um, no. The, what, what I'm trying to do is go the opposite direction. It's not direction. a science then, is it really? It's not a science. It's a mythology. It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy. <laughs> but what I'm trying to do is go the opposite direction. So in my, my most recent paper, I said you can drive macro from micro. From, mm. Sorry, macro from macro itself. Mm. If you started the definition of the level of employment and the wage share of GDP and the debt level, you can derive a model with very simple assumptions about behaviour which give you the characteristics we saw with the financial crisis, the great moderation first, a crisis after, uh, rising inequality. That does all come out of that model. So it's possible to start working that way. What I've done with energy, the same story. If you include energy in production, then you have a link between the laws of thermodynamics and they are incontrovertible laws and economics can be derived that way. But where we stand at the moment, it's just as bad as before Copernicus. We have a bunch of Ptolemaic economists with epicycles and equants and so on and so forth and an earth-centred stable equilibrium vision. That's what we exist is. So just as there was no laws of astronomy before Copernicus, there are no laws of economics with neoclassical economics. So we should be burning our economics textbooks and starting again. Is that what you're saying? There's nothing of merit in, in any work that's been oh, published? I think it's probably better to put them in the field and compost them and turn them into peat. Right. And and see what return you get from that. Yeah. Don't spread them too thinly on the field, though. No, no, it's work. a little visual location. Yeah. <laughs> good to talk, Steve. And look, if, if you're listening to this before Christmas, have a good Christmas. Yeah. And they, we might even make this the uh, the one for the public and Christmas present number. Well. Yeah. That, that would be very generous of us. It let's would be do, generous. Let's do that. All right. Good to talk, Steve. <laughs> we'll see you again soon.
You've got to love these instantaneous pricing decisions, haven't you? That's it for today. Next week, well, we're taking a bit of a break, depending on when you're listening to this, but we're going to skip a week for Christmas and all. Uh, but our first week back in the new year, we're going to look at our predictions, or Steve's predictions, more to the point, for 2020. Will it be better than 2019, or are we going down a, a downward spiral and things are only going to get worse? We'll find out. It all depends on what sort of mood he's in. That's next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.